Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. This episode is the single best conversation about the election that I've had with anybody. It is with Molly Ball, who is a political reporter at The Atlantic and is one of my favorite political writers. I read her work religiously. She just wrote a piece on a subject that is very close to my heart about whether campaigns actually matter. I think one of the things the Donald Trump campaign is forcing us to wonder, or maybe the Donald Trump non-campaign as the case may be, is forcing us to wonder is whether all that money that's getting spent on ads and messaging and field games and get out the vote and all the rest of the constituent parts of a campaign are doing as much to push candidates over the edge as we think, given the fact that Trump is doing almost none of it and is roughly even with Hillary Clinton, maybe a couple points behind. So we talk about that. We also just have a very deep, long discussion about Trump, about Trumpism, about what it means for America right now. Molly gives, I think, the single best description of his appeal, particularly his economic appeal that I have heard from anyone anywhere. I will be thinking about it for quite a long time to come. We talk about Hillary Clinton to talk about what we've learned about the electorate, whether there is a floor in American politics, guardrails, whether politics is about ideas or identity. This is a conversation that goes very, very deep into what we are learning in a year that certainly for me has been very discomforting. It's, again, one of my favorite conversations I've had on this subject. I think you'll really enjoy it too. Before we jump into it, as always, a couple quick requests. Please check out my other podcast, The Weeds. This week on The Weeds, we talked about the debate in some detail, particularly the policy of the debate and whether Trump's first 25-ish minutes on trade were really quite so good as the media thought it was. And we also look at a white paper on what you can learn about health spending for humans by looking at health spending for pets. Share this podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever fine podcasts are shared. It is how we grow. I am very grateful when you do it. And of course, please continue to send me your requests for guests. I am Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. All that said, here is Molly Ball with a very deep dive into a very strange political moment. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. What the hell is happening? <laughs> well, uh, we're having an election. 
No. It's going to happen in November. I don't believe yeah. that. Not for a second. Well, actually, I don't like to make predictions. So maybe I should say <laughs> we are scheduled to have an election. <laughs> Anything can happen. It could still be called off at the last minute. I did speak to an undecided voter in the Colorado suburbs uh, where I grew up. And she said, you know, if you're in human resources and you're interviewing for a job and you don't find the right person, you just extend the search. <laughs> Why don't we just put off the election for eight months, keep Obama in there and like run the primaries again and get different candidates? <laughs> I thought, well, that's one idea. I, I feel like there, there's been a very viral joke that I keep seeing on Twitter and keep seeing on Instagram that it, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it's something along the lines of, America isn't ready to be with anybody yet. It needs some time to figure itself out. <laughs> That's right. America needs to be single for a while. Needs I've to be seen single that one for too. a while. <laughs> and I, I think it's expressing something fairly deep in the id. And there was there was another one that I saw that was something along the lines of, "How about nobody's president and everybody just agrees to be cool?" <laughs> <laughs> one of my takeaways, and, and and we should talk a little bit bit about what we've learned in this election, but America is a long way from everybody being able to agree to be cool. That is yes. not that is not where I would characterize our psychological state at the moment. That is correct. I would not want to take America and put us in a room together uh, and see what happens. So we are talking on the morning that Donald Trump spent the hours between midnight and 5 a.m. tweeting exhortations to watch Alicia Machado's sex tape. Like that is the context in which we speak. We are some <laughs> number of weeks. What a six time weeks, to be alive. Right. Six weeks ish from the election. And one of the major presidential nominees is begging Americans in the wee hours of the morning to watch a sex tape to show that he was right to criticize a Miss Universe candidate for her weight. And the reason I bring that up is that I think that if you had described that scenario to me in broad strokes two years ago, I would say, oh, so the election's 70-30. <laughs> but right. no, it's roughly, you know, it looks right now maybe Hillary Clinton's four points up or something like that. What do you make of how out of the bounds we are of what we thought I think was plausible behavior for candidates and yet how normal the election looks if you were just following it quantitatively? <laughs> That's well put. I mean, it feels in a lot of ways like America's having a nervous breakdown, right? That like these candidates are the sort of epiphenomena of, of a bigger like national thing that is happening. And so, you know, there's all kinds of superficial reasons that I could give for the scenario that you just described. People don't like Hillary Clinton either. Partisanship mm -hmm. is very strong. People have become accustomed to Trump's serial outrages in a way that I think has numbed them, meaning voters, and you hear all the time that people think he's joking or think he's being outrageous or or whatever. But the bigger question, right, is sort of how did we get to this place that something this crazy even came to pass? And there's a lot of deeper reasons for that, right? I think that we are seeing, number one, what you and I have been talking and writing about for several years, the falling apart of the Republican Party specifically. Uh, and the internal tensions finally having reached a breaking point where Trump was able to exploit the specific situation this year with so many candidates and the sort of general situation of a party so divided against itself and so confused about what it ought to stand for, who it ought to represent. So that's how he came to pass. But, you know, the larger sense and liberals hate when you compare Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders, but there are some clear commonalities. And what I found talking to 
the voters for both of these candidates who were anti-establishment voters, who were angry, who wanted to not just enact new policies but tear down the whole system, there's a sense of crisis. There's a sense that things are so bad that extreme times require extreme solutions. And there's a hunger for radicalism in the face of what people see as a corrupt and unsustainable status quo. So let me push on that a little bit because I'm both attracted to it and there are places where I can't make that argument add up. Mm. So that seems to be true for hardcore partisans of the two parties. Uh, I I think there's no doubt. And and they drive primaries. And and so here we are. And yet consumer confidence is that it's high. It's where it was in 1996. Right. I mean, if you back up and you look at how people seem to be feeling about things outside of the context of presidential politics, things just look really normal. Unemployment is under five percent. Wages are going back up. Uninsure. The uninsurance rate is going down. People in polling are not looking particularly strange. The president's approval rating is above 50 percent. And I agree with you. There is some kind of something happened in the primaries. But one thing I'm not sure that I have actually come to a conclusion on myself is, are the primaries representing America or are the primaries holding America hostage? I want to push back on two parts of what you just said. Number one, that it's hardcore partisans. I actually think it is the nonpartisans who are the most disaffected. You're totally right about that. It was independent voters who powered Bernie Sanders. Political junkies, maybe. Non-traditional. No, I mean the people who powered Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders in the in the primaries were people who don't usually vote in primaries. For Sanders, they were independents, not Democrats, not registered Democrats. And for Trump, they were people who generally hadn't voted in Republican primaries before. So in a sense, it was the the sort of neat and tidy primary election system being invaded by a whole new insurgent class. That's fair. That's a fair correction. And on the sort of rosy statistical picture you paint, I think you can cherry pick an opposite set of statistics that tells the opposite story. Growth has been sluggish for quite a while. And I think people are still discombobulated from the recession and the financial crisis of eight years ago. You have a, a world that feels like it's on fire with so many situations out of control with with terrorism, with conflict abroad, and with an administration that doesn't seem to have a handle on that whole scenario. You, you still have a very high number of Americans saying that the country's on the wrong track. And you have people feeling really fearful. The level of fear in the electorate, fear of terrorism, fear of crime, is at a 15-year high. People have not been this afraid since just after 9-11. And this is a number that has gone up 20 points in the last year and a half. So people are angry, but people are also afraid. And I think it's that sense of instability that is being felt in aftershocks in the political system. One of the things, and, and all that makes sense, one of the things that I find hard about these discussions is which way the causality runs. So I think fear is spiking, but I think it's spiking in part because of politics. I mean, if you ask me, am I afraid? I would say I am definitely fucking afraid, (laughs) but I'm not afraid really because of the world. I don't think Brexit poses a terrible threat to the United States. I think that ISIS is a a serious problem, but we're not dealing with the Soviet Union with an armada of nuclear weapons pointed at us in a hair trigger situation. But I do think right track, wrong track things, questions of fear I do think people are in a very fundamental way afraid that 
the system in which that they have entrusted to protect them is, is failing them. But I also think that as the system fails, we work backwards to explanations, mm. right? And so the system's failures become explained by people's fear when I'm not sure that it isn't people's fear being explained by the system's failures. I'm, I'm not sure I totally understand what you just said, but I do think you are correct that the failures of the political system scare people, right? And that some of this is being produced by the gridlock in Washington that we've seen. Mm -hmm. And I think it will have been an incredible irony if Donald Trump, you know, the deal maker, the guy who could get things done and shake up the system was actually a reaction to Mitch McConnell and and the <laughs> obstructionism in in the House and Senate and the and the inability of the two parties to work together. That will have been pretty rich indeed. And the other side of that is that when you talk about, you know, angry America, fearful America, America feeling a sense of crisis, that's sort of one side of things. And then you have another essentially candidate Mm -hmm. trying to stand as the party of, of normalcy and stability and an America that's doing pretty well and that is comfortable with our sort of increasingly diverse and pluralistic society. So... I think that is sort of the clash that is being had, right, is the sort of angry, fearful hordes on the one hand and another candidate saying they're the ones who are scary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what we're afraid of. And actually things are fine and we can and we should be moving forward in the way that we have. I think the what Hillary Clinton stands for question is a super interesting one. I absolutely agree that that is the message that they've been trying to send and yet I also think that her big problem is she stands for this other kind of normalcy. I saw a poll result just yesterday that, that I found a bit shocking, which was the only issue on which millennials trust Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton is financial regulation. And say what you will about Hillary Clinton. She has a pretty tough financial regulation plan, particularly compared to Donald Trump's let's not regulate banks plan. And one thing that I think she has really struggled with, to go back a bit to this idea of people's faith in the system really being shook, she really stands for the political system. I don't think she wants to necessarily, but by virtue of how well, long she's she been around. I think she deserves to. She deserves to. <laughs> I, I actually agree. Yeah, totally agree with that. And that's the thing that, that she can't escape. It's the kind – I think there are a lot of kinds of normalcy Americans are fine with right now. But but that's the one they're not. And it's why I think a lot of the Bernie Sanders voters are OK with Barack Obama, who is substantively quite close to Hillary Clinton, but codes. And I think in some ways correctly in his history as a elemental reformer, as somebody mm -hmm. whose basic attitude towards politics is it's fucked up. Mm -hmm. And Bernie Sanders has that attitude towards politics. And that seems to me to be more important to people. That signal that do you kind of agree this is wrong? seems to me to be more important right now than the question of where exactly does your college tuition plan wipe out debt? Yeah, I mean, it's adorable that you continue to evaluate the candidates based on the plans that they post on their Th websites. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's I, really I quaint. appreciate you've noticed. <laughs> it's really quaint. But yeah, I mean, first of all, this is not really an election about policy, which is another sort of... A thousand daggers into my heart, Molly. <laughs> Sorry, Ezra. <laughs> uh, possibly none of them have been, and we've all been <laughs> fooling ourselves our whole lives, you know? Uh, I feel like that's been one of my potentially uh, learning experiences of this election, that maybe elections were never really about ideas. Maybe they were always about these issues of identity and tribe 
and uh, and people's sense of of where the interests of their group lie, and and who they identify with. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, I think it's bigger than just the political system writ small, meaning just you know the House, Senate, and executive branch. It's the whole system. It's the sort of class system of a sort of group of, you know, out-of-touch elites who fly on each other's jets and give expensive speeches and uh, and sort of hobnob in the same circles and give to each other's foundations and go to Davos. And Trump may be the billionaire in the race, but he there's a certain vulgarity to him mm-hmm. that makes him not part of that sort of polite civilization. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it's something interesting you said that I, that I want to go back to about what is the election about. There is a way in which Trump is very much running an election based on policy or at least on some ideas. And I don't mean in the sense of that Hillary Clinton tries to where she has 45 white papers and each one has 27 bullet points and she's a really articulated policy agenda. But what seems to me to have been really core to Trump was there's a great line that Mark Schmidt used to say, who used to be the American Prospect, is now the New America Foundation. He used to say, it's not what you say about the issues, it's what the issues say about you. And Trump was really good at choosing issues that said something about him. Marco Rubio had a lot of policy plans, but I don't think most people could have told you what they were. But Trump wants to build a wall. He wants to, depending on the day, but in some overarching way, ban Muslim travel to the U.S., He has some policy ideas that are ideas that he managed to use in a way that said, I am willing to stand up for you and you as a very specific you here, a particular class, in a way others aren't. And when I try to explain what happened, like why did Trump manage to do what he did, I think a lot of it was that, that I do think he, funnily enough, is a guy with a really good nose for issues and a really good understanding of when the electorate is one place and the political elites are another, and that by stepping into the middle of that, he can signal something that the much more complex plans of a Hillary Clinton or a Marco Rubio that are really built to find a, like an interest group consensus and, and are polled can't. Yeah, well, the sort of signature issue set of Donald Trump is basically the issue set of Pat Buchanan from the 90s. And I've talked to Pat Buchanan about this. And what he said was, the difference between me and Trump is that Trump is succeeding where I failed. <laughs> so tell me more about that conversation. Um, well, it was fascinating. And, and and I used it in a piece a couple of months ago. But he said, you know, when I was running in the 1990s, I was warning people about the consequences of mass immigration, foreign adventurism, and unfettered trade. But I didn't have the evidence for that yet, because it hadn't happened. I was warning about something that had been proposed but not enacted. He said, the reason Trump won the primary where I lost when I ran is that now people can see the consequences because we've done all those things. I was right all along. I was right all along. We've allowed mass immigration. People see the consequences of it. We've gone into all these foolish foreign wars that were unnecessary, and people see the consequences of that. We've allowed all this trade that's, you know, gutted the manufacturing sector and impoverished the Rust Belt, and now people can see the consequences of that. So, you know, I think people like Buchanan and, and, and some of the Breitbart folks are sort of backfilling an intellectual superstructure mm-hmm. onto Trump, where for him it's all gut. Yep. But there has been an attempt to turn this into a platform and to, I think, going forward, to to try to remake the Republican Party as the sort of ethno-nationalist right-wing party that you see in Europe. And I'll be very interested to see to what degree they're successful in that. The bigger idea of Trump is a worldview 
idea. There has been, for decades in America, an agreement on both sides to subscribe to the polite fiction that we can lift up everybody in America at once, mm-hmm. that everybody can succeed. And Trump says, no, there are winners and there are losers. Do you want to be with the winners? I am going to advance the interests of your group to the detriment of other groups. And it's a zero-sum game, so you better get your piece of the pie. And I think that's a very different way of seeing the world, and it shatters some of the sort of polite consensus of American politics. I think that is legitimately one of the best explanations I've heard of Trump whole cycle. So thank thank you you for that. (laughs) You had a line. It was a tweet, actually, that I also thought was very insightful in this, where you said, like, other candidates say, I understand that you're angry. And Trump says, I'm angry. (laughs) I'm pissed off. To connect those two things a little bit together, Trump in a way that feels like an entertainer's genius to me, recognizes that what you need is for some percentage of people to feel very strongly about you. Most candidates in their heads, even though they're never going to get, you know, in a presidential race, more than 53% of the vote, they would like to imagine they're going to get 86% of the vote, right? They they are always trying to run, as you put it, like a non-zero-sum campaign. Trump is not. He, if he gets 51%, great. And I think that something he has understood that a lot of other candidates don't is that people do intuitively believe the economy is zero-sum. I think they believe it's much more zero-sum than it actually is, but they do mm-hmm. believe that. He he only picks up on a very select set of issues, trade, immigration. There are a lot of things that are very important in the economy he doesn't talk about, but the ones he picks up on are the ones where people's intuition of zero-sumness is the strongest. Mm-hmm. It's a deal with Mexico. And so we're either getting a good deal or we're getting a bad one. Those are your two options. It's people coming in and like you are competing with them for jobs. And and I can talk about output increases and all this shit as much as I want. But he has found issues that, to go back to what the issues say about you, he has found issues that make people feel this is the zero sum. And he's willing to take the cost of that in a way that other candidates seem to me to not be. Well, I hesitate to describe Donald Trump as a brilliant political strategist. He did win the primary. You know, that and 275 will get you on the subway. But, uh, you know, what you're saying basically is he's picked up on the set of issues where people feel they're getting screwed. He's picked up on the set of issues that have caused people to feel resentful, resentful of their their neighbors or resentful of the other or resentful of some other group of people that they see as getting ahead at their expense. And I think that's true. And it's certainly true in the minds of a lot of the Trump supporters I've spoken to. You know, I've spoken to hundreds of people over the course of this election about how they're feeling. And, you know, I had a conversation with a factory worker in Alabama who his father had worked at the tire plant. And as soon as he graduated, from high school, he went to work at the tire plant. And then after, you know, 10, 15 years of working at the tire plant, a foreign company bought it and shut it down. And a thousand people were laid off. But he got some government assistance to go back to school. And he went to a two-year college and he got to spend more time with his young daughter. And it was a wonderful time in his life. And when he finished his degree, he got a job at the rocket plant that was way better than his job at the tire plant. And now he loves his job. He showed me a picture on his phone with where he was meeting some astronauts and everything is great. And I said, well, it seems like the whole system worked really well for you, right? You got assistance from the government to get retraining for a new job. So this whole like 
displaced by globalization thing, like ended up, up working to your benefit exactly the way the sort of pointy-headed liberal social planners would like it to go. And he said, yeah, but if we're going to have tires, why can't we make them here? I don't think anyone should ever have to lose their job so that things can be made in other countries. And, you know, people have that sense that even if I personally am not getting screwed, and that's mm -hmm. one of the things that has been pointed out about Trump supporters, is they're generally not the real losers in our society. Mm -hmm. They're not the poorest of the poor. But they're the people that look at someone else's situation and feel a sense of vicarious resentment. And what can you say to that? That's such an interesting story. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. One thing that I think is true about Trumpism and is true about the who wins and who loses is it he's really talking about large groups. And I think something he's fastened on is that there are some people who in society who folks feel worse if it feels like they are losing to. In some way, Trump is a billionaire. Or maybe not, but, you know, definitely says he's, he's definitely richer than I am. I mean, I, I don't really understand the liberal obsession with trying to point out that he's not. He seems plenty rich to me. But he gets on some level people aren't mad at him. They are mad about the idea that the tire plant goes to China. And he has figured, I think, that out. And that, that, seems, that seems like an important ingredient in it, that, that there's a lot of resentment in the economy. But... He's also figured out the villains people are comfortable with as opposed to the ones that they're uncomfortable with. Yeah. I mean, he's tapped into our innate tribalism and he has very effectively given people someone to blame. It's the Mexicans. It's the Muslims. And you can point at the other as the source of all of your problems. And in a way, that's a sort of tried and true phenomenon in American society. And it's a product of our times as well. You know, I, I um, spoke to a scholar who studied nativism in American history. 
And one of the things he points out is that nativism rises when immigration rises. Mm -hmm. It's not the product of how the economy is doing. There was actually very little nativism during the Depression, for example. Mm -hmm. But the percentage of foreign-born people in America right now is near a historic high. It's at its highest level since, I think, the 1920s. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, some of them here, some of them rooted in abroad. And it probably doesn't help that those people are largely non-white. And so Robert Jones at the Public Religion Research Institute has this wonderful new book, The End of White Christian America. When Barack Obama took office, 54% of America was white and Christian. When he leaves office, that number will be 47%. That is so a sharp drop. Not only is it a sharp drop, but it, but that's the hinge point. That is, right. We are living through the moment in American history where we stopped being a white Christian huh. country, right? We went from one situation to the opposite. And, and I think people feel that. I think people feel that we are in the throes of a remaking of our idea of, our idea of ourselves, that all of the long-term demographic trends of the past several decades have sort of culminated in this moment. And, you know, the sense that particularly older white rural males feel of displacement uh, is correct. They're no longer in charge of the society they were born in charge of. And uh, in a sense, they've already lost their country. I think that the furious anger of a certain segment of our society is the realization that you can't make America great again in the way that they would like. It's already over. Why has it dropped so sharply during the Obama era? That 11% drop, what are the drivers of it? I don't think it's 11. I think it's less than 10. 54 to 47. Oh, 54 to 47. Yeah. Sorry, I heard something. Yeah. But, but still, that's fast. Is it just democratic? Graphic change? Is it people choosing to identify differently? Like, yeah, what it's are the, both. It's, it's both. both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're getting less white because of immigration and birth rates and all of that. And we're getting less Christian because of people disaffiliating and the multiplication of, of the non-Christian population. So I think I, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I think a lot about this part of the question. There is a frame that is always put on this. Is Trump economic anxiety or is he racism? And I think the evidence is pretty strong that he's not economic anxiety. But I also think that we are having a lot of trouble framing a conversation around demographic anxiety. And it's often anxiety about your demographic more than it's hatred of another demographic as anything but racism. We don't seem to have a lot of language for it. And it's colliding into what I think was a valuable and successful, but at this point, potentially at times maladaptive organizing campaign to make a lot of kinds of anxieties impolite in society. And I really don't think anybody has figured out that I've seen really a way to talk about this productively. But to your point, I mean, people are looking around and the country has changed dramatically. As like an, uh, the stat I always use is that a majority of infants under three are now non-white. In addition, you have an African-American president, you turn on the Oscars, Chris Rock, lectures you about institutional racism. I mean, there are a lot of signals that this was, isn't the country it was of 30 years ago. And a lot of people in that feel that they are losing power. It may not be that they are upset about other people doing better, but they feel they are losing power even as they're being told they're privileged. I don't know what you do with that. I don't know. It's a journalistic trope to call for like a different conversation. I don't know how you have it, but I do think that one 
problem in it is that it keeps getting coded as a conversation about racism. And that makes people very, very defensive and also makes people very intent on winning it. And I think that's creating an exceptionally toxic situation in our sort of informational commons where people are having to spin off into places where they're safer from the other side of this debate because it's such an emotionally difficult debate to be part of, thing to be accused of, thing to hear from other people. And I mean that on both sides. Trump has managed to pull it in a way that is helping him. But what comes after him? Like, how does American society absorb this in a more productive way than Trump? Solve our uh, racial divide. You have two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Just like they did in the debate, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. No, I have no idea. I'm not in the problem solving business. I'm, I'm, I'm in the gossip and complain business, which is essentially what journalism is. So I think this is the identity politics election. And I think it is true that a lot of it is... It's reactionary in the sense that it is a reaction to the rising identity politics of the left and of minorities. And you have right now a feminist movement that is more galvanized and activist than it's been in my lifetime. And you have a civil rights movement that is galvanized and active and demanding in a very forthright way that was not happening in the 1990s or Mm -hmm. really the first decade of this century. And so I think a lot of the anti-political correctness sentiment that Trump is tapping into and the tribalism in his followers is a reaction to what they see as the sort of tribal assertions of their opponents. And you hear that, you know, again, the Trump supporters that I've spoken to, that's a lot of what they talk about. I talked to Trump supporters right after Trump declined briefly to disavow the Ku Klux Klan. And they said, I don't see why he should have to denounce the Klan if Obama doesn't have to denounce Black Lives Matter. And to these Trump supporters, those were equivalent racist movements. Huh. So there's there's a feeling, and you know, I'm not saying that it's correct, but but in terms of just understanding where people are coming from, understanding yeah. how people feel, identity is a very powerful force in human mm-hmm. nature. And a lot of, I think, white people in this country feel that they don't have an outlet to express their identity in the way that others are allowed to. Do you think that there's a genteel form of Trumpism? Do you think that there is a Reagan to Trump's Goldwater out there? Some, Or do you think that it is such a core part of this to actually be picking these fights with the establishment, to actually be in a state of genuine opposition, actually be loathe to denounce David Duke, that unless you were willing to do that, unless you had Trump's sort of very unusual personality, his money, his ability to command media attention, and also his ability to handle conflict, because his ability to handle conflict is actually a really, I think, important part of what he's been able to do here, that a Tom Cotton or someone who was upset about absorbing the sort of backlash Trump absorbs just would not be able to do it. That's a really interesting question, and I've been trying to look at it in a couple of ways. First of all, you hit on a very important point, which is all these sort of airy, abstract explanations for Trump. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, the root causes of Trump are this, this, and this. They don't account for Donald Trump, the human being. Yeah. And there's a reason that he was the one to pull this off. You know, I, I wrote a piece a couple of months ago. I'm so glad my editor let me use this headline. And the headline was, why Donald Trump, though? And, uh, <laughs> and sort of headline, tried to actually. go through... With my sources, you know, trying to understand why him. 
And I think it's exactly what you just said. It's his celebrity. It's his money. So many of his positions are antithetical to the interests of the donor class in the Republican Party, that only someone who had his own money and Mm -hmm. his own means of visibility, meaning celebrity, could have done that. And what you just described as ability to handle conflict, I would call shamelessness. Yes. Right? He doesn't care what people think of him. And that's pretty rare, particularly in rich, famous people. Mm -hmm. Most people who are rich and famous care very much about their image. And he doesn't. And you can say that that's his own particular brand, but it is a remarkable quality. And so the question is, can anybody else do that? I mean, you look at someone like Jeff Sessions or or Stephen Miller, who's a former Sessions staffer, now a top Trump advisor and speaks at his rallies. That's the sort of philosophical, you know, anti-globalist positioning. Um, And you've had a couple candidates already try to do that. Paul Ryan had a challenger in the primaries who was explicitly styling himself after Trump. And Trump eventually endorsed Ryan, but, you know, late and grudgingly. Mm -hmm. Marco Rubio ran in the Florida Senate primary against a Trump-like candidate, a wealthy businessman who prided himself on being outrageous and taking positions similar to Trump's. Neither of them got very much traction. Ryan's challenger got about 20 percent. And Rubio's challenger was similar. And you can talk about the specifics of their districts. They're both running against better known politicians, it's possible that there is a 20 percent faction of the party that wants that specifically. And in a 16-way primary with a oddly charismatic figure at Mm -hmm. the helm, you build that into 25 percent and then that puts you in first place and then you build from there. Most primaries are not 16-way. And so it's possible that, you know, I, I have a lot of Republican friends who would very much like Trump to have been an anomaly that vanishes when and if he loses the election. And that's sort of the case for it, right? That in any other set of circumstances, if you don't have a sad and incompetent Jeb Bush campaign and 16 other candidates who are all fighting each other while Trump sort of goes unscathed and a charismatic celebrity standing for this particular set of positions, without that sort of perfect storm, you don't mm-hmm. get Trump as the nominee. You get him as a sideshow. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I began this cycle, or not began, but spent all the time in it thinking Trumpism was going to continue after Trump. That it was, in fact, maybe Trump was actually holding it back. And then for a lot of the reasons you describe, I think that the party's normal ways of blocking would work against most candidates. And and there's just something, there are things that he has that are so unusual that I think it will will make it hard to repeat. But that's a good segue to the thing that he didn't have, which you've started writing about and I'm fascinated by, he has not run a campaign as we would have described it at this level of politics four years ago. There is no ground game to speak of. He is not running ads. I mean, just has begun running ads. He barely ran any in the entire primary. I mean, looking at the difference between what Jeb Bush spent and what Donald Trump spent was comical. Trump is a weird test of this question of do campaigns matter? And he seems to me to be at least at the national level, which I think has very unique dynamics to it, but at least at the national level, he's forcing me to radically revise downward my estimation of how much a campaign can do for a candidate. But but you've written about this. So I'd be curious to hear where, where you were on this a couple of years ago and where you are on it now. Yeah. Thank you for finally getting around to plugging my piece in the October (laughs) issue of The Atlantic. You can pick it up now. Hopefully you will buy a newsstand copy, pay full price, and then go on to subscribe. But yes, so 
I do think that in a year when, you know, Jeb Bush spends $130 million and gets four delegates and Trump spends almost nothing and does not have any experienced strategists working for him, that question has to be asked. What is the point of all of this campaign infrastructure? Is it all a scam? I don't know, but I certainly think it's called into question. And in my piece about whether political consultants have any idea what they're doing, you know, I picked on the Jeb Bush campaign only because it was the most glaring example. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're particular outliers in this regard, except that they spent the most money. But I compared it to the the debate in Jeb world, the, the sort of arguments and recriminations after he lost. I compared it to the aftermath debate about the Iraq war. Was it a bad idea for him to run the wrong candidate in the wrong year, not the man for the times? Or was it just poorly executed, right? A strategy that was ill-conceived, too many pointy-headed white papers, failure to respond to Trump, ads that were kind of lame. And like the Iraq war, it seems to have been both. It was a bad idea, poorly executed. But, you know, I also looked at Ben Carson's campaign, which raised quite a lot of money and spent quite a lot of money and similarly failed. And the question is, was that even a real presidential campaign or was it just a sort of donor bilking mm-hmm. exercise? And I think my point is, if you ask that question of one, you have to ask it of the other two. Right. And, you know, the reason there's so much money in politics is because there's allowed to be, because campaign finance has been so deregulated and there's so many people who want to influence the political process, rich people, that there's just all this money to be spent. And so an entire profession has found ways to spend it. (laughs) And they're very expensive ways. Uh, But Trump, who, uh, you know, really doesn't like to spend money if he doesn't have to, uh, decided he wasn't going to do that and, you know, had other advantages, as we've talked about, primarily celebrity and outrageousness and and extreme skill at what we call earned media, making himself the, the, the subject of news articles. Uh, without having to pay for ads. And as you said, it's sort of an incredible control to the great political science experiment. How many votes would you get as a major party nominee if you basically didn't run a campaign? And the answer so far seems to be most of them. The overwhelming majority. I mean, <laughs> there there is a legend that I think goes at least back to 1996, which is like the legend of the summer definition campaign. In 96, it is believed Dick Morris gets Bill Clinton to start spending very early before Bob Dole has really built up his war chest, before he's really campaigning that hard. And that they managed to define Bob Dole as a past basically by the end of the summer and the election's already over. And this is part of the mythology now of the Obama 2012 campaign right. that old Mitt Romney is still handling this primary and still trying to get his feet under him. They're running an ad about Bain Capital, you know, in every steelworker town in America. The Clinton campaign has been doing this too. And much more so than with Dole, much more so than with Romney, they have been unanswered. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, as far as I can tell, is also out there usually defining himself quite poorly too, <laughs> right? He's out there attacking the cons, He's tweeting very unusual things. He's getting into trouble. He's firing all of his campaign staff and hiring, you know, the head of Breitbart and, you know, all, all, all the things he's been doing. And now, 
This is complicated by the fact that Hillary Clinton really is a very unpopular person. And it is the case that Donald Trump, amidst all this, is also very, very unpopular. So there has been some effect. But to have done this kind of an air war in this almost unanswered way, to have watched the by wide acclaim Donald Trump's convention was certainly a missed opportunity at some level. And, you know, he's still basically, you know, depending on the week, even with her four points behind to give a sharper question on this, one interpretation is that the ground for persuasion is just like it's like six percent of the electorate, right? That because the parties are so different, that no matter what you do, that there are, is just an, inf- a very very small group of people who are willing to change under any circumstance. And the other is that this stuff just doesn't matter. Maybe even occasionally backfires. That's why when Carl Rove spent a bazillion dollars on Mitt Romney's behalf in 2012, it didn't do anything. That's why the super PACs have often been just a way rich people tax each other. Where do you fall on that? I think it's a little bit of both. Certainly the political scientists who've tried to study this will tell you that particularly in a national campaign, the effect of television ads is very short. And, you know, the last time I saw any numbers, Hillary Clinton and her super PACs were outspending Donald Trump and his supporters by a margin of like $150 million to five. (laughs) I mean, it is just mind blowing. There are so many states. I mean... Just because she can, Hillary Clinton is, it has six figures on the air in Arizona, a place that shouldn't be a swing state where Donald Trump is not airing any ads. I do think the thing about swing voters, though, I think that's generally the case, but less so this year because in so many of these polls, even at this very late juncture, you have both candidates mired in the high 30s, low 40s. And that suggests that there's actually about 20 percent of the electorate that's casting about for an alternative. Mm -hmm. They haven't settled on the third-party candidates in part due to the specific nature of the third-party candidates and in part because I think there's just a very high bar for people to to, to feel that they're throwing their vote away on a candidate who's probably not going to win. I sat in on some focus groups of undecided women voters a few weeks ago. And generally, at this point with the election coming up, the people that screen into the focus group as undecided are low information voters. Mm-hmm. They haven't decided because they just don't pay very close attention and they're just not very into politics. This time around, though, it is the high information voters who are undecided. Really? Because they don't like both of the candidates, particularly Republican women. I've spoken to a lot of, we hear about this over and over in the sort of punditry, but it's true, college-educated Republican women or conservative-leaning independents uh, kind of the soccer moms of yore, uh, but their sense of decorum is very, very offended by Trump, even as they have no sympathy with Clinton on a policy level and don't like her personally, don't trust her in a lot of, uh, in a lot of instances. Uh, and it's just a very high bar for a Republican to vote for a Democrat. A lot of these women I've spoken to just say, well, I've never voted for a Democrat in my life. I don't know if I can do it now. So that sort of does bolster your point about why there are so few swing voters. But I do think that we've seen a swingier electorate this year than sometimes in the past because people feel that these candidates are such outliers, particularly Trump, but but Hillary as well, Mm -hmm. that they're willing to question their partisan loyalty. So this is super interesting. So there's a paper I read a couple months ago that that you would really like and that has changed the way I think about this a bit. It's by a political scientist named Corwin Schmidt, and he's trying to understand why there are so many fewer. He calls them floating voters, voters who change who they vote for between national elections. The particular way he frames the paradox, which I thought was interesting, was how do you have simultaneously a moment in American politics where self-described independent 
voters are at their highest level ever, but the stability of voter preferences is also at its highest level ever, right? These independent voters are not independent in the sense that they're unpredictable. They're actually very predictable. Mm -hmm. They almost always vote for the Republican or the Democrat. And where he basically goes with it is that, one, the two parties are so much further apart now than they were 40 years ago that even low-information voters have a much better sense of how the candidates differ. He's got this great stat that shows that low-information voters today are as aware of the candidate, the party candidate differences, as high-information voters were in the 70s, which I think is a sort of fascinating thing. And the other thing is that they hate their own party. So that I've always intuitively understood partisanship is a functionally positive phenomenon, you're a Democrat because you're like Democrats. You like Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or Republican because you like George Bush or Ronald Reagan. And he sees it the other way that basically the reason you have a lot of independents who are stable in party preferences is that they are very afraid of the other party. They know who they don't agree with, but they don't like the party that they're closer to. And, and that I think is a model that would predict behavior a little bit like this where you have relatively few people who are willing to change their vote, but a lot of people who at every turn from voting for Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump to saying that they're going to vote for Gary Johnson or Jill Stein in a poll are trying to signal, are trying to find some way to deal with the fact that the party they're closer to is not something they like, that they are unhappy with their choice. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the parties are symmetrical. And I think there's two main groups that I would trace this phenomenon to. I think on the one hand, a lot of independents these days are former Republicans who've left the party for whatever reason. And you can trace some of this back to the sort of Republican civil war and the conservative media's war on the Republican Party as an institution and on on incumbents and so forth, in, in the Tea Party specifically. Barack Obama won self-identified moderates in 2012, but he lost independents because so many independents are conservatives who have left the Republican Party and feel betrayed by it. On the Democratic side, I think what we're seeing is specific to the millennial generation. I think you have millennials who are anti-institution and they're very ideologically liberal, possibly the most ideologically liberal generation in American history, but they do not feel any loyalty to the Democratic Party mm -hmm. as an institution. I'm interested to see in the coming years what kinds of consequences that has uh, particularly for the Democratic Party, um, but for both parties, really, because it's true. It is this incredible irony that at a time when people people's behavior is more partisan than ever, they have never been less enamored of, of the parties as institutions. And the parties as institutions are so historically weak, too. So I don't know how that plays out. It's also possible on the Democratic side that you just you, you had Barack Obama, who sort of was an anti-establishment primary candidate, never cared about party building, let the DNC really atrophy on his watch. Hillary Clinton is much more of an institutionalist, much more of an establishmentarian, and has already signaled that she plans to try to rebuild the party when and if she wins the election. So maybe that changes, but but it's but it seems like a larger sort of ethos of this generation that they're not interested in they're not joiners, right? They're they're not interested in in, in institutions in that way. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? 
Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate in Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. Do you think this is a Democratic Party problem or a Hillary Clinton problem? This is, to me, the great question about this group in this moment for for the Democrats. I have no way of obviously running the experiment, but if Democrats had nominated Tim Kaine or Barack Obama was running for a third term, would we be having this conversation? If we were somewhere closer to generic Democrat, would we be having this conversation? So I do think that there is a conflict inherent to the way the Democratic Party is structured right now because you do have an elite donor class that doesn't believe the same things as a lot of the base. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Hillary Clinton has sort of done a good job of faking it, but she, I don't think she's, you know, an anti-trade candidate, for example. I think that is Um, true. And she's more interventionist than a lot of the base. And just in terms of her, her worldview, I think is much closer to her husband's sort of triangulating ethos than the sort of economic and racial justice that a lot of liberals are premised on. But the reason we haven't seen a sort of Tea Party of the left is that about 80 percent of Republicans consider themselves conservatives. Only about 40 percent of Democrats consider themselves liberals. And what we've seen over and over again is progressives running candidates in primaries, running against incumbents or for open seats and staking out territory on the left, trying to move the conversation in the Democratic Party, but also the larger political conversation moved the window to the left, and they just don't have the numbers. So they they just keep losing. And Bernie Sanders lost mm-hmm. as well, particularly among Democratic partisans, because the majority of, of members of the Democratic Party considered themselves either moderates or conservatives. So, you know, that number, that liberal number is higher than it's been in 20, 25 years, but it still hasn't taken over the party because that's just not where the where the numbers are. But I, I, w- I want to push on this for another for another minute because I, I struggle with this question, and I feel like if I could answer it, I would understand this cycle a lot better. If Kristen Gillibrand had run for the Democrats, right? If Hillary Clinton just hadn't run, and so they had nominated, obviously there's a chance it would have been Bernie Sanders, and that's a very that would be an interesting question as well. But if it had been the kind of Democrat Democrats typically nominate, you know, a a John Kerry Democrat, a Bill Clinton Democrat, just someone who was liked in the party, but possibly not that super well-known to the public, again, just a little bit more of a generic player, would these fissures seem so great? Or is there something about Hillary Clinton that is uniquely problematic to particularly the young generation of, of Democrats, that because of things that she was around for part of, because of a 
just a, a, a generalized distaste for long-serving politicians who were part of the establishment at every at every turn, that she has had a problem that another member of her party wouldn't have. And so while while the underlying dynamics you, you're talking about are, are very, very true, maybe they are 25% of the issue and not 75% of the issue. Or do you think they're 75% and not 25%? That, that's the part of this that I struggle with. Yeah, I really don't know. I think I think it's both. I, I don't think you can disentangle them. Yes, Hillary Clinton has a lot of baggage and is very unpopular. And the way that Bernie Sanders made the case against her really resonated particularly mm-hmm. with young voters, obviously. So it's it's specific to Hillary Clinton and her defects as a human being and a candidate and, and the specific baggage that she has and the stuff with the emails and everything else. But it's also this sense of her as a creature of the system and this sense I was talking about before that that we're in crisis and need to change things up. And so potentially a Tim Kaine or a Kristen Gillibrand has that problem too, although they don't have the generational problem. And, you know, so many young women voters in particular felt that even though we haven't had a woman president, they felt like that feminist victory was beside the point or did or, mm-hmm. or unnecessary because it was inevitable at some point. That's interesting. We are going to have a woman president. It's obvious. So we don't, but, but it doesn't have to be this one. And I, I, you know, I had female college students in New Hampshire tell me that they thought Bernie Sanders was a better feminist than Hillary Clinton because he was more progressive on X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. How much of that is Hillary and how much of it is based on policy and, uh, and your sort of issue orientation, I don't think you can disentangle those things. Have you spent much time on the trail this year with Clinton? A bit. Do you have impressions of her that vary from the Clinton conventional wisdom? What has been your read of her in the same way that I think you've developed a, a somewhat different view of Trump than is just the one you would see following his tweets or whatever? What what do you think is true about Hillary Clinton that most people miss or underestimate for good or for bad? I guess I don't depart radically from the conventional wisdom. You know, I, I try to see through the eyes of, of, of voters as much as possible in terms of what they do or don't see in her. And the very first official Hillary Clinton event of the year, uh, when she announced her candidacy on Roosevelt Island in New York, first of all, it's kind of remarkable that you're in America's biggest liberal city and you can't get more than 5,000 people to your campaign announcement. (laughs) I wandered into the crowd to talk to people about her speech after she'd given it and found this like elderly Jewish couple arguing about it with, you know, the husband saying, I like the speech and the wife saying, "Ah, I thought it was boring. I thought it was lame. And over and over again, you know, I went to Iowa, I went to a Hillary Clinton event and half of the people I spoke to were like, well, she's fine. You know, we know she's going to be the nominee, so we might as well just get on board. There's this sense of dutifulness, this sense of... Now, certainly there are people who are inspired by Hillary Clinton, but I no other candidate have I have I met so many of their supporters who seemed so blah or conflicted or dutiful. So many people who, who go to see her because she's famous and they think she's going to be president and are just sort of fundamentally uninspired by her. Now, is that her fault? Is that some larger phenomenon? Is that decades of right-wing infrastructure that have been dedicated to tearing her down? I have no idea. 
But it's the way people feel about her. And it's, I think, made her campaign a real uphill climb as much as, you know, we talk about the larger forces behind people's partisanship and all these sort of abstract political science explanations. A campaign really is about personality. And people are looking for the sort of excitement and drama of a clash of personalities mm -hmm. in a presidential race. Uh, and uh, that's not something Hillary Clinton is good at projecting. Hillary Clinton uh, believes very strongly that she is popular when she governs and unpopular when she campaigns. Do, do you think there's something to that dynamic or do you think that's kind of a self-serving rationalization for being unpopular when she campaigns? Well, it's interesting. So when she governs, meaning when she was a senator and when she was secretary of mm -hmm. state, and I think being president is a different game. So, I mean, one of the questions I'm most interested in after the election, if she wins, is sort of whether whether she can govern, whether she can put back together our broken political system. Uh, and uh, And I have no idea. I mean, but we do have evidence from her stint as a senator and a secretary of state, uh, that she works very hard mm -hmm. and that she is well-liked also by Republicans, right? I, I know a lot of Republicans on the Hill, on the staff level, and even some uh, some members who felt that she was someone that they could work with in a way that they've never felt able to work with President Obama. And so that's a that's a good sign for her. Does that Will that accrue to her benefit in terms of public opinion? I mean, you don't go through a campaign like this and then all that acrimony just disappears, yeah. right? I think given that she is the second most unpopular major party nominee in American history, I think she's kidding herself if she thinks that, you know, she's going to take the oath of office and snap her fingers and people are just going to forget that they didn't like her or didn't trust her. Both of these parties are running, they're running older candidates who represent a place the party is, but I don't think anybody thinks they represent necessarily the future of the party. Who do you think is the most talented politician sitting on the Democratic and Republican benches? Oh, that's a good question. I have no idea. The Democrats in particular have a very thin bench. Mm -hmm. People think of her as a fresh face, but Elizabeth Warren is almost as old as Hillary Clinton, yep. for example. I don't think we know yet. I know this is a cop out. But, uh, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand is someone who's quite well-liked, who's quite dynamic, who's very good at politicianing, which is sort of the mm -hmm. question you're asking. There's a few. There wasn't, you know, sort of a breakout speech at the Democratic Convention of the yeah. kind that Barack Obama had in 2004. And part of that is that the Democrats' bench has been decimated by all the elections they've been losing down ballot. Yeah. You know, Barack Obama is really the only successful, consistently successful Democratic politician of the Obama era. And every time he's not on the ballot, they get their butts kicked. So there's not a very robust pipeline of Democrats coming up through state legislatures, governorships, and the House and Senate. On the Republican side, we had supposedly, you know, the most talented field potentially in history in this campaign with a bunch of well-credentialed former governors and senators, you know, Poor Jeb Bush became such a punchline by the end, but he was a very well-regarded governor of Florida. Mm -hmm. He left office historically popular. I remember doing reporting in Florida in 2012, asking Republicans about Rick Scott, the current governor, and they would say, I miss Jeb. People really liked him and thought he did a good job. So it's easy to say in hindsight, oh, he was a terrible candidate. He was 
it was it was the wrong man for the times. But he really that's not the way people in Florida felt about him when he left. One of the questions for four years from now or eight years from now for Republicans next time they have to nominate a candidate is going to be, do they look to the same bunch of guys? Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it sort of depends on what is the party's takeaway about Trump. A lot of the sort of never Trump guys are convinced that this is going to be the litmus test that like if you didn't stand against Trump, you've discredited yourself morally and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. I think that's unlikely. But so the question is, do you go back to someone like a Rubio or a Ted Cruz who's clearly positioning himself for the post-election argument to say this happened because we didn't nominate a true conservative? I guess what I'm saying is I think the question for the Republican Party in terms of who they look to next has less to do with who's a talented politician and more to do with how they sort out this argument about what Trump meant and what just happened and where the party goes going forward. and. That's a chicken and egg question because the form of that argument will probably be the presidential primary. (laughs) And I want to circle back a little bit to where we were at the beginning. You talked about the American people having a nervous breakdown. And we talk a lot about what Trump means and what we've learned about Trump and what kind of guy he is. And we talk a lot less, but nevertheless, some about Hillary Clinton and what kind of person she is. Do you think that we have learned something essential or enduring about America right now? Or do you think that we are just in a very weird blip? Like, what have we learned about the American people, if anything? I feel like I've learned a lot about not just the American people, but sort of human nature. I think I previously labored under the polite fiction that elections were contests of ideas. And I now think they are contests of identity. And looking back, I don't know if they were ever anything else. I feel like I'm learning so much <laughs> from this election. And uh, it's it's a heck of a time to be alive. Um, I, don't, I don't know how it's just a blip because I don't know how you put the genie back in the bottle or, or whatever the right metaphor is, right? I, it's just feels... Like we something has been unmasked by this election and it'll be hard to put that back together. Right. I don't think you get a bunch of Republicans, for example, all in a room pretending that nothing just happened. But Hillary Clinton would like it to be the case that we have a moment of national healing after this trauma that we've all been through. Maybe I'm too cynical, but I have a hard time seeing that being the case. But how do we deal? I mean, that's the political story that I'm going to be covering for the next several years, right, is sort of how we pick up the pieces and move forward. Because it does feel in a way that I haven't necessarily felt in previous elections I've covered, like this is a bigger referendum on American society and therefore a larger sort of social trauma than just – 51% of Americans decided they were against supply-side economics or whatever. Right. I I think related to that, the thing that I – I think my lesson, and it's a lesson that scares me pretty deeply, and I would love if you thought it was wrong. I thought that there was a floor you couldn't go below. I thought the system was close and had very, very strong, good reasons for elections to be continuously close. A competitive democracy is a good thing. But if you nominated a candidate wildly out of the mainstream – that the penalty for that would be really severe if you went far enough. 
And I think that if you took me aside two years ago and you told me what was going to happen this year, you told me the things that Donald Trump would do, would say what he would say about the NATO alliance, for instance, what he would do with the cons, what the way he would tweet during the election, just like in an everyday way and crooked Hillary, what he would say to Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz about his, his own endowments. I would have thought that, that the system has a kind of correction within it. That, yeah, things are usually close and the two parties are usually close and that's all as it should be. But you go too far out of the out of the lines and you'll really pay. And I have come to think that we do not have the safeguards, the guardrails in this democracy that I thought we did. That the chance that something could go very, very, very seriously wrong in America is just much higher than I thought and I found that to be a very difficult conclusion to to sit with. This is not really an answer to your question, but two really interesting things to watch on November 8th. I'm curious to see, number one, what happens to turnout. Mm-hmm. Because I could make a case for extraordinarily low turnout this year because everybody, because so many people don't like the candidates and are burned out by the negativity. And I hear from so many people we don't even want to think about the election. It's too gross. <laughs> or we could see historically high turnout because we've never had the amount of interest in an election, the sense of panic on both sides, the sense of anxiety. And, you know, it's possible that that both sides are so galvanized to vote against somebody in particular mm-hmm. or galvanized positively in some cases that we get historically high turnout. And I have no idea which one of those is going to happen. I've asked some pollsters and they say it's too early Mm -hmm. to try to measure whether more people or fewer people than usual are going to vote. And then the other question is about the margin, right? You have a lot of people already sort of trying to litigate the margins. I've I've talked to Democrats who say it's not enough for Hillary Clinton to win this election. We've got to crush Trump to make a statement that that's not what we're about as a country. Talk to Republicans who say, well, you know, Maybe they maybe they don't want Trump to win necessarily, but they'd like it to be close to serve as sort of a shot across the bow of the Democrats to say, look, this is not a mandate for you. This is not, you know, America coming overwhelmingly to your point of view. You almost lost to this person you think is a fascist. So maybe you need to take a hard look at yourself, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're going to hear a lot of those types of arguments in like the sort of elite media and op-eds, and which is, you know, our version of a shooting war in American politics. So I generally don't believe there are moral victories in politics. You win or you lose. But I think what kind of margin we see in this election will will be really interesting for exactly the reasons that you state. I mean, this election is not just a referendum on Donald Trump. And a lot of people who don't like Donald Trump still have a really hard time voting for Hillary Clinton. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's close is so many of the people who've been put off by Trump are still people who would like to be able to vote for him, right? And that's why if he behaves even marginally better for a couple of weeks, his numbers go way up because so many of the people who have padded Hillary's margins when she's been doing well are Republicans and conservative-leaning independents who would really like Donald Trump to give him any thin pretext to vote for him. So to the extent that he can do that, he can come close. So we tend to end this podcast by asking for some book recommendations for guests. What are a couple books, new or old, that 
you think help people understand this election, this moment in American politics? What, what are some things that have helped influence your thinking and you've brought to this? This is a bad question for me because I have three young kids, so I don't read books. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite book about politics of all time is is, is All the King's Men. I, I also don't read a lot of political books because when I have time to read books, I generally want to get my mind off of politics. This year, when I took a vacation, I read uh, the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante. And those are mind-blowingly good. And I think actually informed my growing doubts about human nature in a way that actually did lead me to understand this <laughs> election better, um, particularly in the early novels when she talks about there's a lot in there about the sort of the the divide between traditional and cosmopolitan ways of living and the village life oh, interesting. versus the life of sort of educated urban people and and the and the tribalism and violence of traditional existence that actually I think is really relevant and on point for a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. In terms of political books, yeah, I'm drawing a blank right now. I, there there certainly are some, but nothing's coming to mind. Sorry. Molly Ball. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Molly. That was a conversation I enjoyed tremendously. I hope you did too. Thank you to all of you for being here this week. Thank you to my producers, AC Valdez and Afim Shapiro. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production. We'll be here next week. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.